Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today I'm joined by Alma Heckman to talk about 20th century Moroccan Jews, and especially Moroccan Jewish communism and its broader politics, which is the focus of her recent book, The Sultan's Communists, Moroccan Jews and the Politics of Belonging. Listen in as we dive into the history of Moroccan Jewish politics, the development of Zionism, communism, and nationalism in Morocco and North Africa at large, and why it's important to think through the choices and the agency that Jews in Morocco and beyond have had in determining their fate and politics throughout the 20th century. Alma Rachel Heckman is an assistant professor of history and the Neufeld Levin Chair of Holocaust Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's the author of The Sultan's Communists, Moroccan Jews and the Politics of Belonging, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2021. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation. I'm so glad to be able to welcome Alma onto the podcast to talk about important issues about Moroccan Jewry, North African Jewish history at large, and the power of politics in modern Jewish life. Hi, Alma. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I was just thrilled to get my hands on your book. It's just such a phenomenal topic, a really, really exciting uh, set of issues, and I'm glad that we get a chance to talk about it. Thanks so much. One of the things that I think that we can maybe start out with is really just what is the story here, right? You're writing this book about what you call the Sultan's communists. And what it's really about is about the place of Jews in the changing political and cultural environment of Morocco over the course of the 20th century. What does this mean? How do we look at Jews in Morocco from the early 20th century going forward from there? And what is the role of Jews in the changing politics of Morocco and the broader region? The jumping off point is really that so many histories, Jews in Morocco, limit their story to between, you know, sometime in the late 19th century to 1956, when Morocco gets its independence. And then the vast majority of Moroccan Jews leave Morocco. For the most part, they go to Israel. Oh, they also go to France, they go to Canada, they go to other parts of the world. But there have not been so many studies about Jewish political involvement in Morocco at all. Jews were much more treated as kind of passive subjects, as figures that are buffeted by the winds of colonialism, by Zionism, by Moroccan national politics without too much um, investigation in their own involvement in the politics of the nation state and as the nation state developed. So that is what I'm really interested in in the book was actually just uncovering that story to begin with. Um, The fact that Jews were actually politically involved in Morocco and that Jews were invested in Moroccan national politics from an early date and continued to be involved in Moroccan national politics after the traditional endpoint of 1956 as well. So that was the primary concern that I had was showing, in fact, there is a political Jewish history here that had not been covered previously. I mean, I think it's important here that you're emphasizing the involvement of Jews 
in the wider cultural and political context of Morocco, right? You're not saying, you know, and looking at Jews in Morocco as being divorced from what's taking place around them, but you're arguing that Jews are inherently invested in and involved in the politics of Morocco, both before Moroccan independence and also afterwards, when most, especially most popular narratives of thinking about Moroccan Jews emphasizes the immigration, right, the process of emigration of Jews uh, leaving Morocco, uh, especially for the state of Israel. Why is it important for you to tell this kind of story, both in terms of thinking about Jews in Morocco as part of the political landscape and also embedding Jews in Morocco very deeply in their context and understanding that it's not just a story of Jews leaving the country and going somewhere else. I mean, the way I came upon this story was through meeting individuals that cared very deeply about Jewish life in Morocco and advancing an argument that Jewishness and Moroccanness were somehow mutually constitutive in the nation. And you see that argument till today. Um, you know, rare is the week where you can see where without a newspaper talking about something about Jewish history in Morocco or some figure talking about Jewish history in Morocco. It's a very popular subject in Morocco. I mean, the figure that sparked the whole project is a man named Simon Levy, who was a communist Jew. Um, he ran the Museum for Moroccan Jewish Heritage and a foundation for Moroccan Jewish Heritage in Casablanca. And before I began the project, right, as, as a Fulbrighter, before I was even in grad school, I was just volunteering at this museum. And I'd never heard of Moroccan Jewish patriotism. Um, and I hadn't read the handful of books there are about Jewish patriotism in Middle Eastern and North African countries in other contexts. And so when I met this figure of Simon Levy, who was so adamantly patriotic and had expressed his patriotism through the Moroccan Communist Party, it was like a revelation. And I spent many months interviewing him and talking with him, discovering that there was in fact this story that I had not been acquainted with before they had not heard about before. And he really became the jumping off point. And I wondered how many other people were like him. And so everything that he did, including founding this museum in Casablanca, was in the service of making an argument about the essential Moroccanness of Jews in Morocco, that there was much more in common between Moroccan Jews and Moroccan Muslims than Moroccan Jews, say, and uh, French Jews or something like that, that above all, the Moroccanness had to be underscored. And that was an argument that I hadn't heard prior to meeting Simone Levy. That really set me on this investigative path. The way you just framed that is actually really important, that you said that you know, the sense that Moroccan Jews had more in common with Moroccan Muslims than they would necessarily, for instance, with French Jews, you know, in as much as we think about the French colonial influence on Morocco. you know, And this is a story that runs across North Africa, broadly speaking, you know, about the relationship between Jews in different places and French Jews. How does this fit into the broader history of Jews in Morocco and the 20th century history of Moroccan nationalism and Moroccan independence? Yeah, well, the first thing I should say is that Moroccan Jewish communists were a tiny minority of a minority. They are in no way representative of Moroccan Jews as a whole. Um, at, at any part of their history. Most Moroccan Jews 
were largely apolitical and looking to sort of keep out of the political limelight. They were walking a tightrope trying to show their loyalty both to the Sultan before he became the king after independence and to the French colonial administration until it disappeared in 1956. They didn't really want to rock the political boat. So the people that I write about in this book are not representative of Moroccan Jews writ large. However, they do intersect with the wider Moroccan Jewish community, and they spend a lot of their time trying to persuade, particularly in the 1950s, the 1960s, they spend a lot of their time trying to persuade Moroccan Jews to become more politically involved and to sign up for the National Liberation Project. But, you know, one thing that Simon Levy said was when I interviewed him for the first time, he said that there were a few forces working over Moroccan Jews that put them at uh, remove from Moroccan Muslims. And those forces were colonialism, the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which I can talk about in a second, and um, Zionism. And that there were these three sort of exogenous forces that separated Moroccan Jews from Moroccan Muslims that dated from the mid-19th century onward. But the goals of the Alliance were to prepare Jews, wherever they were, for citizenship in their home countries. However, the way in which they did this was a little bit strange to our modern ears, was by educating them in French, not in their native languages of the places where they lived, teaching them French history, French geography, French poetry. They had a smattering of Hebrew, but not very much. Um, a smattering of religious education, but not very much. It was largely a secular school system. And at, and at any rate, um, people like Simone Levy and others credited the Alliance with serving as a wedge between Moroccan Jews and uh, Moroccan Muslims, creating a parallel educational citizenship formation track that would distinguish the ones from the others. Um, so there's that. Colonialism for the French colonial policy in Morocco and elsewhere in North Africa largely privileged Jews over Muslims in a kind of colonial subject hierarchy. It wasn't like in Algeria where French citizenship was granted to Jews. And that didn't happen wholesale in Morocco, but they still occupied a relatively more privileged rung in the colonial political ladder vis-a-vis -vis Muslims. And then Zionism, Simon Levy blamed for causing Moroccan Jews to dream of looking elsewhere rather than investing in their home country. Part of what you're talking about here is this tension over how do Jews fit into the society and to what sense do different groups of Jews feel themselves to belong to Morocco? And this is the, the term that you use in the title, the politics of belonging, and the, the different ways in which, as you've just highlighted, that there are different factors that are causing a wedge, you know, or a sense of difference between Jews and their non-Jewish neighbors. Right, right. Well, I use belonging in a couple of different ways. One of them is, I mean, the title itself, The Sultan's Communists, it's a possessive. And it comes from, it's from Daniel Schrader's book title, The Sultan's Jew, a book that he published about an early 19th century Jewish merchants 
who acted as a political envoy between the Moroccan state and the British, for the most part, as a representative of the Moroccan state. Schrader really talks about the phenomenon of Jews working as representatives of the Moroccan state, as merchants, as diplomats, and that they both represent the state and they belong to the state, that there is this possessive relationship that the sultan owns the Jew to some degree. That's the sultan's Jew, the Jew that belongs to the sultan who represents the state. And that's one of the dynamics that I wanted to riff off of for the Sultan's communists, right? That these Jewish figures that I write about, even though in some times they are, they form the political opposition to the king, especially in the 1960s, the 1970s, although they have differences among them about their strategies for shaping a future vision of Morocco and the Jewish place within that future Morocco. They still are loyal, ultimately, to the Moroccan state, even if they disagree with the king. They are very, very loyal to the institutions of Morocco and the idea of future vision of Morocco, to which they both belong in the possessive sense and feel a sense of political belonging as national Moroccans, and they're seeking a place for Jews as belonging to the state as sort of emancipated subjects, as full, entitled Moroccan national citizens, but also they serve as representatives of the sultan who becomes a king after independence. And some of the people that I write about, including Simon Levy, became ultimately in the 1990s, this is a little bit later, but they became these emblems of the Moroccan state's tolerance, quote-unquote famed tolerance, toward religious minorities as a distinguishing factor in the region. Part of what you're doing here, as you mentioned before, is you're telling the story of a minority of a minority. What does this tell us in kind of a big-picture way by looking at such a small group about bigger issues? And I say this in light also of the fact that, that when I often think about questions about why Jewish history matters on a broader scale, it's like, what are the ways in which we can look at a people that on a global scale has always been small in, in number can tell us about big picture issues and large questions? What is it about this minority of a minority that allows you to plumb the depths of thinking about the nature of Moroccan history and the development of Jewish history in North Africa, broadly speaking? Some of it has to do with what I was just talking about, about some of these figures becoming really prominent representatives of Morocco abroad, despite the fact that they're not representative of most Moroccan Jews, but they become very famous um, and they become very prominent. So in addition to Simon Levy, Edmond Amran and Male is another one of the figures I spend a lot of time writing about. He eventually found fame as a novelist. Um, he didn't start writing his first novel until he was in his 60s. Um, living in, in self-imposed exile in Paris because he was disenchanted with the post-independence Moroccan state. But he wrote these sort of semi-autobiographical novels that really wrote about Moroccan Jewish politics, that wrote about out-migration, that wrote about rural Moroccan Jews um, versus urban Moroccan Jews. 
and he created these sort of pastiche characters that were trying to represent um, broader trends in Moroccan Jewish history. So there's that component. Abraham Serfati became arguably the most famous Moroccan Jew um, in the international stage. He was one of the longest serving political prisoners in the world when he was finally released in the early 1990s. He had had a rupture with um, Simon Levy and with Alumale and with others in the Communist Party, and then you know was imprisoned for about 18 years before finally being released on the grounds that he was not actually a Moroccan citizen, so he could be chucked off to France. Um, but the point is, they these are all minority figures, and they're all very distinct in their own way and disagreed with each other in some fairly prominent ways. But they became the most famous of Moroccan Jews abroad. Um, so that's one reason to focus on them and how they became these kind of ambassadors of the Moroccan state, willingly or otherwise, these representatives of the Moroccan state and how it treated its Jewish minority. At other intervals in the earlier eras, I mean, there were different times where Jewish membership of the Moroccan Communist Party was higher or lower in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, for example. There was a real spike in membership among Jews in the Moroccan Communist Party, and it was much more popular. In the interwar period, I argue, the Moroccan Communist Party was just one of a number of popular front organizations that were very popular among Jews and non-Jews that sought to stem the growth of fascism in Morocco and stem the tide of growth of fascist propaganda in Morocco. So a minority of a minority, just like Jewish history writ large, right, a minority of a minority can really shed light on some of the trends that affect the majority, that can shed light on otherwise occluded subjects in broader historical settings. And sometimes that minority is a very prominent minority and has a lot to say because of that prominence. So can you maybe say a bit more then about the bigger trends looking at, you know, Jewish communists in Morocco help us to think about, for instance, the history of Jews you know, under the Vichy regime or you know, Jews in the 1950s and beyond as well. How is it that this small minority then illuminates the bigger picture? Right. So in the Vichy period, this is the period that is getting increasing scholarly attention for good reason. It's a fascinating period when the Vichy French fascist government, I mean, many people are familiar with that uh, the Vichy government in the main French hexagon itself of France but um, there have been recent publications that talk much more about the colonial world and how the colonial world fared under Vichy France, including Jews of North Africa. The Communist Party was officially outlawed just before, actually, the Vichy period was outlawed in Morocco in 1939 because of its supposed subversive activities. So it was actually outlawed even before the Vichy regime came to power. But because of the interwar activities of the Moroccan Communist Party, because it had been aligned with other popular front organizations, including the International League Against Anti-Semitism, which was another Paris-based organization that was widespread in North Africa, that also 
was aligned with the LICA, as it's called, the International League Against Anti-Semitism, the Moroccan Communist Party became a sort of natural progression politically for those Jews during the interwar period who were opposed to creeping fascist rule. And that continued into the Vichy period, even when the Communist Party became um, illegal and had to operate underground. Another facet of communist politics during the Vichy period was that there were a series of labor camps across Morocco, Algeria, as well as Tunisia that the Vichy government operated. One of the prime groups that were interned in those camps were communist volunteers in the Spanish Civil War, and many of them had traversed from Spain into Morocco in 1939 at the end of the Spanish Civil War, and they became enemies of the French state, the Vichy state in particular, and they were interned in these forced labor camps and prison camps across Morocco and Algeria. Many of them were very instrumental formatively for the communism of a lot of the North African Jews that ran across them. Abraham Serfati, for example, talked about having Spanish communist neighbors and talking with them about ideology and um, learning from them and that motivating him into the Communist Party. He also worked on the docks for for the Americans just after Operation Torch and the landings. So, I mean, in El Male cites the Vichy period as really formative in his own political activism. So quite a number of these people cite the Vichy period as this time when all that they had been taught about French republicanism, about French assimilation, about the place of Jews in a French political entity, became completely undermined with the installation of anti-Semitic Vichy legislation. And so Jews had a few different choices as a result of that. They could either see the Vichy period as a kind of aberration, a blip in a wider screen of French involvement in Jewish history, and many did see it that way, or they could see it as a total betrayal of everything that the French state and that the Alliance had been inculcating among them, and so rejected then the French state and went to instead embrace communism or Zionism. You know, this leads us also to the question of Jewish politics in Morocco you know, in the 1950s and beyond, especially post-1948, you know, following the establishment of the State of Israel, post-1956, following Moroccan independence. You know, how is it that looking at these Moroccan Jewish communists helps us to understand the kinds of political and social and personal choices that people were making you know, in this time period in the post-war era? when you see over the course of a number of years, I want to say the, you know, the vast majority eventually of Moroccan Jewry leaving from the country and immigrating you know, to Israel. And you here are looking very much, as you said, like a minority of a minority of people who remain behind. And Morocco still has a significant Jewish population, you know, one of the largest Jewish populations in the Middle East outside of Israel. But ultimately, you know, here you're looking at people who stayed when you know, so many people were leaving. So what does this then tell us altogether you know, about the path of Moroccan Jews on a large scale and also about those Jews who remained in Morocco post-independence? 
Well, some of the people, I mean, they were operating toward a vision of a Morocco that could be rather than the Morocco that actually existed right in front of them. So they were very idealistic about the place of Jews in a future Morocco, how Jewish life could operate in a future Morocco, what the state would look like. I mean, they condemned the moments of anti-Semitism and violence that took place in Morocco in the 1940s and 50s, largely um, surrounding events around Israel and Palestine that that were these flare-ups about violence and um, anti-Zionism that verged on anti-Semitism in Morocco and elsewhere in the Middle East and North Africa. And so they condemned those moments, but they also took a very harsh line toward the majority of Moroccan Jews, saying that most Moroccan Jews were not involved enough in the national political movement, that they were not committed enough patriotically. So they spent a lot of time issuing propaganda directed at Moroccan Jews, calling on them to become more involved, which largely fell on deaf ears. A lot of these figures were representative of political liabilities for the wider Moroccan Jewish community. They rocked the boat. They could get somebody in trouble with the French authorities. They were not part of a majority political party either, right? The Communist Party was relatively small relative to other national liberation organizations that were operational at the time. And suffice it to say, the Communist Party was much more open and universalist in its vision of Moroccanness than other national liberation groups in Morocco. Most Moroccan Jews did not heed the call of Moroccan Jewish communists. Most of them were rather alienated by what the Moroccan Jewish communists called for and said. And many were very understandably nervous when there were deaths of Jews in um, Ujda and Jarada in 1948, when there were boycotts of Jewish businesses in the early 1950s, and that, that persisted until later into the 1950s and 1960s, there was reason for them to be, to be nervous. 1961 was a terrible year for Moroccan Jewish life in the sense that, you know, the King Mohammed V died suddenly, and he had been very popular among Moroccan Jews. He died under um, a relatively minor operation unexpectedly. The Egyptian pan-Arab nationalist president Gamal Abdel Nasser visited Casablanca, and this resulted in violence against Jews in, in Casablanca and elsewhere. And a Zionist um, migration, illegal migration ship known as the Pisces, sank, which brought big scandal into Morocco as well in 1961. Um, this is after independence, right? There was this sort of honeymoon period after independence where, where people were more optimistic. But in the early 1960s, again, we see um, a growth in anti-Zionism, verging on anti-Semitism and a growth of political instability in Morocco that made Jews very nervous. And that nervousness persisted into the 1960s with conflagrations with Palestine and Israel that ended up taking shape in, in a number of alarming ways 
for Jews in Morocco, whereas the communists, I mean, they, they acknowledged those threats, but they were largely dismissive and, and seemed to take the approach that Jews should ignore those threats and instead buckle down and pr- they just hadn't proven their patriotism and their Moroccanness enough. That was their problem. One of the things that you've highlighted here is the way in which Jews in Morocco had a series of different options for what kind of politics, what kind of cultural frame or framework that they wanted to identify themselves with or participate in. You mentioned, for instance, the Alliance and the, the French colonial cultural context of trying essentially to inculcate you know, Jews in Morocco and elsewhere you know, in the Middle East and North Africa you know, into a Francophone cultural sphere. You know, also the question of communism, Moroccan nationalism, not even to mention Zionism and, and Jewish nationalism. So how is it that Jews in Morocco navigated this kind of process of thinking about where it was that they belonged, how they thought about themselves, their aspirations for the future, and so on and so forth, and ultimately the ways in which, you know, for your group of people, communism became the political direction in which they moved. Why is it that these different options are significant for the way in which we think about the experiences of Jews in Morocco in this time frame? Yeah, so there were three prevailing political choices that Moroccan Jews um, faced. And this is true also of Algerian Jews and Tunisian Jews. And to a greater or lesser extent, it's also true, I mean, with some modifications, thinking about Jews of Egypt and Iraq, I mean, it's really a characteristic of Jewish political life across the Middle East and North Africa from the late 19th century into the 20th century, where there are a few prevailing, but I'll stick to Morocco for the sake of this conversation. But for the Moroccan Jews, the Alliance represented a certain embrace of French Republican ideals of citizenship, um, a certain French emancipationist idea of the place of Jews in the nation state, that Jews should be full participating citizens, that religion should be relegated to the private sphere, whereas publicly one was French in the case of the French emancipationists. And as that's mapped onto Morocco, then one would be Moroccan. So that was the sort of alliance model, the sort of alliancism, I call it, um, or allianciste, as others have called it. The second one, Zionism, right, was a mode of thinking about Jewishness that surpassed the Moroccan nation state that saw Moroccan Jews as Jews first and foremost, um, and saw them as belonging to a community of Jews that extended across uh, many different geographic terrains. Although I should say there's quite a lot of variety of kinds of Zionism among Moroccan Jews as well. I mean, for many, it was a very kind of cultural movement rather than any of them expressing any particular intention to leave Morocco and move to Israel. It depends on the time period we're talking about, or to the mandates, or to the issue of whichever term we're talking about. And communism was the primary mode for Jews who were interested in participating in national liberation politics to do so. 
there were other national liberation movements, the, famously the Istiklal, which means independence in Arabic. Um, that was the most prominent national liberation organization in Morocco. There were a few, the Parti Démocratique d'Indépendance, that PDI. There were other movements, but for the most part, the Moroccan Communist Party really um, captured most Moroccan Jews interested in participating in the national liberation movement because of its very universalist understanding of Moroccan, whereas these other national movements largely had a sort of Muslim basis to their understanding of Moroccanness. Um, the Communist Party did not. It was much more universalist. And also because it had been operating in the interwar period as an anti-fascist organization, it, it drew in a lot of Jews in a way that the others did not. And those all developed, evolved in their own way in response to things like two world wars, um, the growing national independence movement, to violence in, in um, Palestine and Israel. They're not stable entities over the 20th century, but the Zionism, Alliancism, and Communism represent the three main trajectories of, sorry, not Moroccan Jewish communists, of Moroccan Jews in the 20th century. One way to continue this line of thinking is then how was it that the story of the Moroccan Jewish communists and the part that that plays in the broader cultural development of Moroccan Jews and of Morocco in general, in what ways does it illuminate, you know, our, our thinking about these three issues on a bigger scale, right? The question of Zionism, the question of communism and nationalism, uh, and the question also of the alliance politics. These are three major themes that, as you mentioned, can be seen tracing throughout the Middle East and North Africa you know, in this time period, but also beyond it, whether we're thinking about Eastern Europe, whether we're thinking about the United States, whether we're thinking about any other region of the world, these three forces, you know, without oversimplifying it, really represent the, the manifold choices that Jews had before them to participate in different kinds of political movements, cultural trajectories. And so by looking at the Sultan's communists, does that illuminate our broader understanding of the history of Zionism and Jewish nationalism, the history of Jews and communism, broadly speaking, you know, the history of Jews and the politics of citizenship? In different places around the world. Yeah, well, it's funny you should mention that because I'm I'm working on an edited volume at the moment with my co-editors um, Nathaniel Deutsch and Tony Michaels, and we are we have been for several years working on this edited volume, investing in the question, investigating the question of Jews and the left in a holistic way. And what, what is the there there? Is there something that we can say about Jews and the Bund in Poland or Lithuania that has something in common with Jewish leftist movements in Morocco or Iraq or in Argentina or in South Africa or Egypt, right? In all of these different places, we see Jews being drawn to the left in disproportionate numbers. And the question is, can we identify any sort of reasons why? Is there anything Jewishly connected to those reasons why? We're working on the introduction at the moment. So this is at the top of my mind. But again, the question of political belonging is central to this idea in all of these contexts, whether we're talking about late 19th century Russian Jews or, you know, 1960s Moroccan Jews or Iraqi Jews, 
there is the central question of what is the place of the Jew in the state, however that state is looking at that time period, and what is the ideal vision of Jews in that state. And for many Jews, the answer comes through joining a leftist organization around the world. Most Jews were not involved in leftist politics. Most Jews were not involved politically in any of these movements. So no matter where we're looking, it's a minority movement of Jews on the left that seek to answer modern iterations or transforming iterations of the so-called Jewish question as it's mapped onto colonial questions, as it's mapped onto Cold War questions, as it's mapped onto all of these different questions across the 20th century, the left provides an aspirational answer for Jews in all of these different settings for political belonging and defining space for Jews in one political context or another. So political belonging is very much at the heart of it. And I think Moroccan Jews, that's just one example of a much wider story of Jews seeking to find political belonging in a number of different contexts, albeit this time it's a decolonizing context. And that's something that tends to be more particular to the Middle East and North Africa than it is to Eastern or Central Europe. Thinking about Zionism, I mean, Zionism takes different shapes, of course, just as the left takes different shapes. But Jewish anti-Zionism is something that has gone underappreciated in the story of Moroccan Jewish communists. They saw joining a Zionist organization as a betrayal of Moroccan nationalism. And that's true for Jewish leftists in a number of different contexts in the Middle East and North Africa specifically that Zionism represented a betrayal of the nation state. Um, because, you know, you have to remember that in nationalist formations across the Middle East and North Africa, solidarity with Palestine was a key component of, say, Moroccan nationalism or Iraqi nationalism, Egyptian nationalism, etc. So to prove one's nationalist bona fides, one would have to show solidarity with the Palestinian movement as well. Even though it's a minority of a minority, it certainly speaks to Zionism as well. And it speaks to these broader questions of the place of Jews in modern nation states, above all. I mean, all of these questions sort of deal with these permutations of the Jewish question of what is the place of Jews in this nation state? You know, not only should they be emancipated, but once they have been emancipated, what kind of role do they play in that state? Is part of what you're seeing here the way in which these kinds of issues go beyond the specific historical contexts of different places where we might usually tend to think about, for instance, as you put it, the Jewish question? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Jewish question is something that originates in Europe, but then spreads elsewhere through European colonialism, specifically in the Middle East and North Africa, and informs Jewish colonial policy, specifically in French North Africa, but other iterations of what is the place of Jews politically, we see arising in lots of these different contexts. And they have different answers. I mean, and sometimes the answers don't have to do with Jewishness. So one of the cases that a couple of scholars, Shane and Mendelssohn, were writing about um, is about Jewish involvement in um, anti-apartheid activism 
in South Africa, right? I mean, that kind of leftist radicalism isn't so much about making space for Jews in the national political scene, but demonstrating belonging to a future idealized vision of a nation state in which apartheid is abolished. So it's not always about Jewish belonging per se, but about belonging to an idealized version of a state. One of the things to consider here is that when we talk about, quote unquote, the Jewish question, you know, in in historical context, of course, it manifested itself in different ways in different places. But one of the important aspects of this entire component of modern Jewish history is that there were multiple questions, plural, right, that one can talk about that are being asked from different perspectives, different points of view on the most basic level, the, the question from the perspective of the state, from the perspective of the political leaders of the state about the place of Jews in the emerging new politics in whatever form that that happened to take and the place that Jews would have within that. There's also the question from the perspective of Jews, of how they saw themselves within the changing societies in which they lived. I think that part of what is interesting here is that you, in looking at the particular Moroccan context, are able to help us think through both aspects of this. You know, the way in which Jews in Morocco, you know, some of them anyway, saw themselves within you know, the transforming Moroccan society over the course of the 20th century, and also the ways in which the Moroccan state saw Jews as being a part of it. And you, know, you emphasize, for instance, you know, the, the ways in which this history of Moroccan Jewish communists uh, and, and this particular cohort um, you know, itself has been part of the shaping of public narratives about the place of Jews in Moroccan history and society. On the one hand, a kind of a convivencia, you know, narrative of living together uh, in Morocco. And at the same time, you know, you've talked about, you know, the figure of Simone Levy and, you know, your experience encountering him in the museum at the very starting point of your thinking about the set of issues, you know, where you see figures within a contemporary Moroccan society, Moroccan Jews in Morocco, um, articulating a sense of belonging in Morocco, which is very much a part of this ongoing question about how Jews in different places feel themselves to be a part of the societies in which they live. And when you look at this history and you think about the different aspects of it, there's the question of what does it teach us about big issues, but it's also about how has this history been used and put to use you know, by people within Morocco you know, who want to look to this group of Moroccan Jewish communists you know, in order to structure their own sense, whether from the point of view of the state or the point of view of Jews, of thinking about this relationship over the course of history. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the term convivencia because it's absolutely central to this. So convivencia refers classically to this sort of golden age romanticized image of Jews in medieval Muslim Spain sort of living together harmoniously, even though if you dig very far, if you are acquainted with the history, you know that it's much more complicated than that. There are some time periods in which Jews are doing splendidly under Muslim rule in medieval Spain. There are times where they actually do better under Christian rule than they do under Muslim rule in medieval Spain, right? So it's it's not such a, a tidy history in that sense. But Morocco positions itself as one of the heirs to Al-Andalus, to the legacy of Al-Andalus, to the convivencia narrative to Muslim Spain. 
and its treatment of Jews. I mean, Morocco, in many of its historical publications and contemporary publications, I mean, this was an argument marshaled during the struggle for independence, saying, we welcomed Jews in 1492, and Morocco has always opened its doors to Jews, and therefore Morocco is a, you know, this wonderful home and always been very tolerant of Jews. And the Moroccan Jewish communists that I write about also embrace that narrative to a large extent. Simon Levy called it tayush, or living together. He preferred an Arabic term to convivencia. Eric Calderwood and Isabel Rohr have both written about um, the convivencia narrative from different standpoints, from the Spanish imperial standpoint, from northern Moroccan Jewish standpoint. Eric Calderwood's book is Colonial Al-Andalus and talks quite a bit about the romanticized convivencia narrative. And that narrative is very strong today in Morocco. Morocco is very proud of still having a Jewish minority living in Morocco. The Jewish tourism is a prominent part of Morocco's touristic economy. You see in Morocco, I mean, in the city of Fez in particular, there are a number of Jewish UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Jewish cemeteries and synagogues are very well marked across the country. They're very, very prominent. And so the convivencia narrative is one um, in which the communists participate, in which we see this idealized form of Morocco take shape. And the state very much benefits from the convivencia narrative, even when it's challenged, right? In 2003, there was a set of bombings in Casablanca that included um, Jewish cultural centers in Casablanca. Then, you know, the king said, you know, no, this is basically the land of convivencia. We have the legacy of Al-Andalus, like this is not Morocco, pushing against um, any sort of extremist version of Morocco that wouldn't have a place for Jews. Yeah, so are you trying to undermine this popular narrative to some extent or complicate it in some way? You know, what is the the connection between your scholarship and the very public role that this history of, of Jews in Morocco has taken you know, over the past few generations? Well, I certainly seek to complicate it. Um, I mean, I think there are grains of truth, right? Moroccan Jews did do relatively well, and there there was this heritage of Al-Andalus. Large numbers of Jews from medieval Spain did go to Morocco. So did large numbers of Muslims from medieval Spain go to Morocco. They also went to Algeria and to Tunisia. And so there is that very concrete history, but there's also the more complicated history that some of the worst periods of persecution that Jews faced in medieval Spain was under medieval Moroccan dynasties that ruled over the Iberian Peninsula. That's also true. And, you know, it's also more complicated than what Simon Levy says, right, when he said that the Alliance colonialism and Zionism worked over Moroccan Jews, and that's what explains the separation between Moroccan Jews and Moroccan Muslims. And that's what explains the departure of, you know, 250,000 approximately Moroccan Jews over the span of a few decades. It's more complicated than that. I mean, there was, I mean, mainly there was 
you know, anti-Semitic activity in Morocco. And yes, it's largely inspired by the conflict in Israel and Palestine, but we can't ignore it. It's not just, you know, because of Zionism. It's because people were receptive to those arguments also on the ground. And it's important to take note of that. I mean, people don't leave just out of a vacuum like that. There were real reasons to be anxious, to be nervous, and to want to seek stability in other places. So I do seek to undermine that because, I mean, the convivencia narrative is just way too simplistic. It's too simplistic to describe medieval Spain, and it's too simplistic to describe contemporary Morocco or any part of Moroccan history. Because there, as we, we know as historians, that there's no way that such a sort of rosy tinted vision can encapsulate all of this complexity. Well, certainly, whenever history is being put to use in the context of politics, we always know that there has to be something more complicated than whatever story is being told. Right, exactly. It's not everything was rosy until colonialism and Zionism. Another aspect to think about here especially as we start to think about kind of where this area of research fits in to the broader thinking about big picture issues in the historiography and in, in the you know, not just in in the literature but in the broader thinking about Jewish history and also Middle Eastern and North African history it has these very close parallels with uh for instance Lior Sturmfeld's work on uh the Jews of Iran one of the things that 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 really struck me there was the ways in which many people uh, in the public and you know, people who aren't as familiar with the history might think about the periodization of these histories, whether we're talking about Jews in Morocco, Jews in Iran. You know, these are, of course, at polar opposites geographically of the Middle East and North Africa. But ultimately, you know, that we see this sort of historical trajectory, a very simplistic one of political change and then emigration in connection with that. And I think that part of what you're doing here, which is similar to what Lior did in his book, and we, we also talked about this on the podcast as well, is uncovering the continuing history of Jews in Morocco in the time period that many people think of that the history is kind of over, so to speak. It very much is not. Yeah, no, there's quite, Lior and I have talked quite a lot about um, the similarities. It, it's really uncanny, the similarities, particularly in periodization and some of the prominent figures between our books, uh, even though, as you say, they are taking place at the, uh, at the extreme ends of the Middle East and North Africa. How does it help us to think through the continuing history of Jews in Morocco, which is to say that you know, it's not just a simple story of Jews, you know, left for Israel, you know, post-1948, post-1956, that Jews are still there. This history is, it's it's not over. It's not a post-mortem. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. I mean, Jewish history is definitely not over in Morocco. Iran has a much larger Jewish population um, than Morocco does now. Um, in Morocco, they've been saying the same estimates of about 2,000 Jews for like the last 10 years. So it's hard to say how many Jews are actually remaining living as full-time residents in Morocco, but there is quite a lot of back and forth people going between Israel and Morocco or France and Morocco. Um, there's quite a lot of movement with the normalization of ties between Morocco and Israel, um, that kind of fluid movement is only going to increase 
um, as well. But there are still plenty of Jews in Morocco that are very proud of Moroccan Jewish history. Um, largely, they live in Casablanca with pockets living elsewhere like Marrakesh and Fez and some in Tangier as well. But no, I mean, Moroccan Jewish history didn't end in 1956 with independence. It didn't end with this mass migration. And there's a new chapter of it starting now where a lot of, there's quite a lot of tourism of Israelis of Moroccan descent visiting Morocco. And that's been going on since the 1980s, but that's only increasing. I mean, André Lévy has a wonderful book called Return to Casablanca, where he writes as an anthropologist, but as a Moroccan Jew born in Morocco, but then lived in Israel with his family about what is it like to return to Morocco as part of these tour groups. So that is yet another continuing chapter of this kind of story. And as I said earlier, right, rare is the week where a newspaper, some newspaper or another in Morocco doesn't print a story about Jewish history. Um, there have been multi the main history magazine called Zman, meaning time, in Morocco. It's sold at uh, train station kiosks. They have dedicated multiple issues to Jewish history, um, and they often have features about the Jewish past in Morocco in their pages as well. I recently participated in a edited volume from Mohammed Sank University, which is one of the most prestigious universities in Morocco, dedicated to a Moroccan scholar named Mohammed Kenbib, who has devoted his career to studying Moroccan Jewish history. So there are all these scholars around the world that were taught that had been mentored by him or who have been inspired by his work, contributing different pieces to this volume. So, I mean, there's interest in studying Hebrew at different institutions in Morocco, in Al-Akhawain University, a prestigious English language speaking university in Morocco. There's something called the Mimuna Club. Predominantly, it's Muslims who are part of a club um, that's named for the Mimuna holiday, a holiday just after Passover in Morocco that celebrates um, Jewish and Muslim convivencia, for lack of a better word, uh, where Jews and Muslims get together and eat bread and other ritual items like really nice pancakes and things like that. So there are all these different organizations across Morocco dedicated to Jewish history, Jewish life um, that are flourishing, that have a lot of public interest. It's a book about politics, right? You know, Jews' involvement in Moroccan politics and kind of the political life of Jews. But it begins with this tongue-in-cheek quotation, quote, Jews don't do politics. And you're very quick to point out that the, you know, the figure who is saying this is not being totally serious about it because obviously Jews are political and, and you are showing this throughout the entire book, you know, the ways in which Jews are involved in politics in, in many different ways. I think that the, one of the big things that this book is trying to do is to undermine the notion that Jews are apolitical uh, in the Moroccan context, which as you pointed out, I think earlier in our conversation, there was a large and significant portion of the Moroccan Jewish population that was not involved in politics, right? But you're saying that that we need to understand the Jews or Jewish individuals, as it were, um, as people who also do politics. So what does it mean for Jews to, quote unquote, do politics? And why is it so important to push back against the notion that Jews were apolitical you know, in the Moroccan context and beyond? 
Yeah, well, in the Moroccan context, you, you see this in French security reports from the colonial administration. You see this from Alliance reports, many other Jewish sort of organizational reports, that the interest was in keeping Jews out of the political limelight, trying to keep Jews under control, keeping Jews from being too um, politically active, um, because that could only reflect poorly on the Jewish community. It could only show that maybe they were not sufficiently loyal to the French protectorate authorities or to the sultan or whatever it was. And the idea was to keep them as a sort of non-troublemaking population. But the point is there were all these Jewish troublemakers and political figures, despite the intentions of organizations like the Alliance and despite the intentions of not just the Alliance, but of the French colonial and the Spanish colonial administration. We didn't even talk, there's a gulf of difference between what's going on in Spanish colonial Morocco in the north and French colonial Morocco in the main kind of heartlands of the state. For many Jews, and many Jewish communal leaders also had a vested interest in keeping Jews apolitical, again, trying to keep them from rocking any sort of political boat. But for the people that I write about, if they are to attain the idealized Moroccan state, if they are to rid the country of fascism, etc., then they need to become involved politically and work toward that future Morocco. What you've highlighted here are some of the ways in which Jewish organizations, Jewish institutions had a vested interest in trying to portray the Jews as being separate from the politics of Moroccan nationalism, especially under the French. But why is it so important then for us to understand that this was not really accurate and that Jews actually were involved in politics in various forms? Like, Why is it so important for us to look at Jews as being intimately involved in the politics of Morocco and, and beyond as well? Why is it important for us to say you know, Jews do politics and we need to look at Jewish history through a political lens? Yeah, I think there are a number of different reasons, but primarily when, um, as we touched on earlier, most popular narratives of Jews in the Middle East and North Africa don't include the story of Jewish political activism with a few exceptions. I mean, Joel Bainan's written about it in Egypt. Rami Ginat has written about it in Egypt. Lior wrote about it in, Lior Sternfeld wrote about it in Iran. Orit Bashkin has written about it in Iraq. Emilio Rahmouni writes about it in Tunisia. Pierre-Jean Lefort Luciani writes about it in Algeria. There's sort of a handful of people that have written about um, Jewish political involvement in the Middle East and North Africa. But so many popular narratives construct Jews as passive subjects, as people that just sort of, particularly from the Middle East and North Africa, as subjects that were just sort of swept up and um, migrated en masse in the 1950s and 1960s without so much political agency behind them or without revealing the political history behind them or without acknowledging that many of these Jews, even if they did leave, were deeply patriotic, uh, were committed to national liberation movements in their home countries, sometimes even if they did end up leaving. And that's a very important node of the story to think about. Um, and it complicates our understanding of migration to Israel and to other parts of the world. It complicates our understanding of fundamentally Jewish political belonging and a sense of self-belonging in the Middle East and North Africa. 
that's not just Jews apart in some sense, but rather really entrenched visions of political participation in those areas. I think that as you've pointed out here, this is a story which is being told in a number of Middle Eastern and North African contexts. And part of the question that we might need to ask is, why is it that we see yourself along with many other great scholars unearthing kind of a similar story in in different places? Part of the story here, I think, is that everybody's kind of pushing back against a certain kind of Zionist historical narrative of the sense of Jews in the diaspora you know, as this passive group that lacks political agency, you know, which only comes about with the rise of the state of Israel. Uh, that's the kind of the Zionist telling of the story of Jewish history, broadly speaking, um, which, as we know, is completely oversimplified and doesn't really reflect what was going on in so many different ways. You know, but I think that part of what is happening here is the way in which there's this public discourse, you know, sort of infused with a Zionist undertone that Jews in the diaspora, and especially in places like, you know, North Africa and the Middle East, you know, were these passive subjects uh, and not politically active in any way, because it was quote unquote impossible in a Zionist frame of mind to think of it in any other way. Right, right, exactly, exactly, right, is pushing back against this idea that, and many of these people were anti-Zionists, right, that's also impossible, according to the Zionist narrative, right? I mean, people like the people I write about in Morocco saw leaving for Israel as a betrayal of Moroccan nationalism and betrayal of Moroccan Jewishness. And same thing for other parts of the region, that leaving for Israel was not part of the national agenda, was not part of um, local Moroccan or Egyptian or Iraqi Jewish belonging in that case. The other half of this story, you know, just thinking about you know, the Zionist historical perspective, um, is also about the experiences of Jews from Middle East and North Africa when they arrive in Israel in the 50s and, and 60s. And this question of political agency of Moroccan Jews, Iraqi Jews, you know, et cetera, et cetera, in the state of Israel. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said here also about the way in which, you know, for instance, Moroccan Jews in Israel also sought to have political agency in the state of Israel, you know, ultimately culminating eventually with the rise of Likud in the 70s. Right, right. I mean, there have been a lot of good scholarship about this. Brian Roby's um, book, The Arab Mizrahi Rebellion, Orit Bashkin's Impossible Exodus, um, among others, and Dario Mikoli has been writing about this. There are a few different scholars writing about the trajectory of Mizrahi politics in Israel and their linkages to places where they came from, to political formations where they came from, and how they did not cut ties, absolutely, but these things are formative um, from their backgrounds previously, and that they uh, manifest. So yeah, not only the rise of Likud, but also the Israeli Black Panthers, um, other sort of protests in the Ma'abarot, in the transit camps in the 1950s and 1960s, we see a lot of deep roots for contemporary Mizrahi politics in Israel with connections to their antecedents in the Middle East and North Africa, and with increasing back and forth migration, or not migration, but tourism in particular between Morocco and Israel, that only becomes stronger. What then is the connection then between the history that you're telling about Moroccan Jewish politics over the course of the 20th century and in these bigger issues of 
historical agency, political agency that we see in Jews throughout the Middle East and in Israel in particular? What are the ways in which we can draw a connection there as we kind of step back and try to understand the broader history of Middle Eastern North African Jews? Yeah, I mean, it's one place among many where we see Jewish political agency, where Jews do politics. Moroccan Jews, Jews of Moroccan descent, make up a large percentage of Mizrahim in Israel today. And understanding this story of Jewish political activism in Morocco and these deep roots of Jewish political life in Morocco sheds light on um, contemporary politics in Israel and on contemporary politics in Morocco. And because of recent current events, political life in Morocco and political life in Israel is even more publicly connected than it was previously. And so it, it shows how these things matter still in both of these geopolitical contexts. All right. Well, thank you so much. You know, I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about your book and about the big issues that connect with it. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. And thanks to you for listening to this episode with Alma Heckman. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.